0: Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here. Thank you for your patience. We just had some tech issues we were dealing with, but you will be very happy that you stuck around because we have a great show for you. So during the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about Rafat al the Gazan poet, translator, professor, inspiration, and mentor for many who was tragically and infuriatingly assassinated by Israel on December 6th. We'll be talking to Ali Abunima, who edited and published, really published more than edited, published Rafat's work at Electronic Intifada. We'll also talk to Nora Barrows-Freeman, who is also an editor at Electronic Intifada. And we will talk to Mahmoud Aliyazi, who was a student of Rafat's. And that'll be very moving and important. And yeah, it's a terrible thing that happened. But before we do that segment, we are going to be talking to law professor Sahar Aziz and writer and analyst Mitchell Plitnik about their new report, Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamophobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse. But before we do that, just a quick reminder, everyone, please do give this stream a thumbs up. Give it a thumbs up. Also, subscribe if you don't already subscribe. We, again, are getting through trying to break through a lot of propaganda out there. So we really want to make sure people come and watch this. And in fact, we have an exciting announcement, which is that we reached the 150,000 subscribers mark. So thank you so much for doing that, everyone. And if you can support us at Patreon, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And there you get extra content. And for just $1 a month, you get to support the show and make it happen. We couldn't do the show without that. And for $5 a month, you get extra content. This week's extra content will be a debate between me and Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. So without any further ado, I'm going to bring on Mitchell Plitnik and Sahar Aziz to talk about their new report, Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamophobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yes, of thanks. course. Good to be here. Thanks for coming. And I wanted to actually start off by asking you about your pers- well your professional and if relevant, personal backgrounds that brought you to be working on this report in the first place.
1: Yeah, so I'm a professor at Rutgers University and also the director of the Center for Security, Race and Rights. And the center is the first civil rights center at a U.S. law school that focuses primarily on the civil and human rights of Muslim Arab and South Asian communities. And I'm the founding director because I spent 15 years working on civil rights work related to Muslim Arab South Asians. And there were no institutions, academic centers specifically, that were working on these issues. And yet the discrimination was not decreasing with time after 9-11. In fact, it had just become quite entrenched. And so what brings me to this issue is that both in my academic research and in my work with the center is we look at how international events and relations between the United States and Muslim majority countries impact the stereotypes, the perceptions, the treatment or mistreatment of these diverse communities in the United States. And one cannot understand things such as Islamophobia or anti-Arab racism for anti-Palestinian racism, which you don't understand what's happening in Palestine and, and in Israel and the relationship so that those two areas have with the United States.
2: And, well, as you said, I'm a, an analyst and a writer. I'm president of a small nonprofit called Rethinking Foreign Policy. And I've been working on Palestine and Israel for the past 20 plus years. And was I was the founding co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. I was the founding director of the U.S. Office of B’Tselem, and a couple of years ago, I co-authored a book with Mark Lamont Hill. It's called "Except for Palestine: The Limits of Progressive Politics." And this was how I met Sahar uh, because she was gracious enough to host an event with myself and Mark, and we got to talking. And I guess when. She came up, this was really just report was her idea. And but she came up with the idea and she approached me and I just thought it sounded like a really exciting project. So we got to work on it. And here we are.
1: Nice. Well, I guess just to add to, to that, the reason why the idea came to my mind is because every time, whether it was me or colleagues of mine in the academy or students or civil rights advocates, anytime they wanted to work on Palestinian human rights which intrinsically involves having to analyze Israel's practices, oftentimes critique Israel's practices and policies. And every time they do that, they would be called anti-Semitic and people would believe it. Um, Not because they had said anything that was hateful towards Jews or that they had tried to intentionally discriminate, okay, this is an Islamophobic joke and it really needs to be addressed.
0: Yeah, so you offered to be like a Jewish shield,
2: Mitchell. <laughs> I'm not sure. Being you know, coming from the background I do of JVP and B'Tselem, yeah, exactly, I'm not sure right. how much of a shield I provide to anyone. Right, but I I do think it's valuable to anyone to you know. I think one of the things that 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 grounded this report in such strength is that I do come at it from a Jewish perspective. Sahar comes at it from a Muslim and perspective. I come at it from coming from the nonprofit world and academic. I mean, I think we we brought a diversity of background into it, and I think that can only make it stronger.
0: Yeah.
1: And you, when did this come out, by the way? November, the middle of November, 2023. So it, even though we've been working on it for over a year, it happened to also come out at right. the same time when many people who are critical of Israel and supportive of Palestinian human rights are being falsely accused of anti-Semitism. Right. So, yeah, sorry, Mitchell, I cut you
0: off. No, I was
2: just going to say, it it, it it came out just sort of fortuitously at a time when a lot of the things we were talking about in the report are coming to the surface with a vengeance, literally. Right. Yeah.
0: So I want to know if you could talk about one thing. I have a lot of questions because the report is really good and I highly recommend it. But I do kind of larger macro question is so you you're report talks about the exceptional treatment afforded Israel by the United States. What is behind that exceptional treatment? Why does Israel treat the United States that way?
2: I mean, this is obviously a bigger question than our report. There have been many books written on this, always controversial. And I think always, in my view, you know, even one book can't capture the full answer to that question. And there's obviously a very long history of American support for Zionism and for the state of Israel. There's a lot of different reasons for it, and they've changed over time. There was a, you know, for for many years it was a Cold War rationale that drove uh, U.S. policy towards Israel. The Cold War ended; there needed to be a new rationale, and and I think we we argue actually that rationale became you know this sort of clash of civilizations the- thinking, the you know, Samuel Huntington book, and. You know, all of the, that was very popular just in the 90s and just when the Cold War was ending it was a perfect sort of way to to pick up that ideological thread that was hanging loose. So I think there's a lot of that. Obviously, we know that there are also very powerful lobbying forces at work. I think Jewish history has been badly sidetracked, I guess, or instrumentalized. By this movement to justify some truly horrific things, you're seeing that in, again in spades right now in a really big way in Gaza. So there's a diversity of that, but it's usually characterized as love of Israel, support for Israel, you know, partnership with Israel. It's always focused on Israel. And what I think has not had enough attention is what we're focused on, which is the other side of that. Because in order to support Israel we see, for example, Joe Biden, he stands up, I am a Zionist, I am, you know, I rock solid behind Israel. But what does that mean? It also means that for his entire term, long before October seventh, he completely ignored and buried the entire issue of Palestine, did everything he could to divert attention away from it and to actually, you know, to work with the Saudis to bypass the whole issue of Palestine. One can speculate as to whether or not that brought us right here. I think it did. But we don't just we generally don't pay enough attention to that other side, which is if you're talking about Zionism and how much you love Israel, you are also denigrating Palestinians and often taking that to an extreme, as Joe Biden has questioning the the number of Palestinian deaths, just basically buying every horrible, pernicious lie that Israel comes up with, and never questioning anything that they say, no matter how badly it feeds into these Islamophobic tropes that we discussed. So we need to look at that other side. We need to think about it's not just that we love, you know that our government loves Israel and supports Israel. It's that it is either indifferent at best and very often opposed to uh, literally to Palestinian life. So you know, where does that come from? How does that part happen? That, we, I think there's a lot less academic literature on, and I think that's what we're trying to begin to address, at least with this report.
0: Something that is so applicable to what we're seeing right now with these kind of academic witch hunts and censorship and demonization of terms like from the river to the sea and intifada. So you write, a bastion of free speech, individual liberty and equality. This is the mantra our government repeats across the world and teaches nationwide in American schools. Rarely stated, however, are the varying limitations imposed on persons seeking to exercise such rights according to their identity. Protection of fundamental rights is at its zenith when exercised by white Judeo-Christian communities, while exceptions are frequently invoked when racial or ethnic minorities exercise the same rights to challenge policies and laws harmful to their communities. Members of the majority engaged in dissent are treated as patriots with different political views. Minorities who dissent are treated as security and cultural threats deserving of social stigma at best or criminalization at worst. This racialized double standard is most acute for Muslims or Arab Americans when they exercise their free speech right to criticize the U.S. government's failure to hold Israel accountable for its systematic violations of Palestinians' human rights. So this is, again, something that we're seeing right now happening on campuses. And I wanted to actually ask you before I show you some examples of that, how does what's happening on campuses right now relate to your report? So I wanted
1: I'm going to have to put a little pitch in for my book, The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom, because I spent five years researching the very topic you just summarized and to kind of expand on what Mitchell stated In order for Israel to effectively obtain the unconditional support of the U.S. government and a significant percentage of the U.S. population, it needs an Arab Muslim foil, right? It needs to show and it successfully does show, not because it's the truth, but because people in the U.S. have been socially and politically primed to believe that Arabs are these savage people. Right? And Muslims are again—they they present an existential threat to the Judeo-Christian Western world, and that has been part of the narrative, whether it's framed as Hamas or the PLO or Yasser Arafat or you know, a specific individual or Palestinians at large or Arabs at large. But there's always. In order for Israel to be seen as effectively a Western outpost, a Western civilizational outpost and part of global whiteness, which is privileged right in the global international order, it has to have a threat, a brown threat, a Muslim threat. And the Palestinians represent that within that specific geographical space. And the farther back in time you go, you'll find that used to include Egypt before the peace treaty. It used to include Syria and Lebanon and and so on and so forth. So what you're seeing on campuses right now is a very specific and extreme example of one group of students being treated as if they are threats to the university, even though they're students who pay tuition, who attend class, who are have many of them are US citizens. But when they dare to exercise their free speech rights, in ways that effectively free speech rights are supposed to be exercised, which is to dissent, people in power or people who have a majority view or people who have mainstream views don't really need free speech rights because they're, everything is normalized based on what they believe in. Free speech rights were, were established and religious freedom rights were established for minorities because the people, you know, the founders of the and the drafters of the U.S. Constitution understood from their own experiences with Britain, is that the groups and the individuals and the communities most likely to be suppressed politically and repressed politically are going to be those who are don't have mainstream. Rights. and they're, they are the ones who need to be legally protected. And so, what we're seeing, well, first, first and foremost, right, students for justice in Palestine, and what I think is unique uh, to the. To this time, 2023, is you also now have Jewish Voices for Peace and this new generation of of Jewish Americans who are joining and allying with Palestinian, Muslim, and Arab uh, students. But ultimately, it's all being uh, portrayed, right, as this illiberal threat to anyone who is supportive of Israel and oftentimes essentializes Jewish identity and Jewish political politics within the diverse Jewish American communities, which in and of itself I think is quite I'm perversely anti Semitic. <laughs>
0: yeah, like the notion that all Jews are a monolith who support Israel plays into the speaking of tropes, the the dual loyalty trope. And I've always said that or recently said that the people who conflate being Jewish with being a Zionist are like raging anti-Semites who use those words interchangeably, right? Like the Zionist that, the Jewish this, the Jewish that, and then the ADL, APAC, and this government of Israel. And there's something, I think that's kind of telling. And we're going to get into the question of the dangerous conflation of Jewishness and Zionism. But before we go there, let's just take a look at some of the way we're seeing this campus uh, demonization of people who are critical of Israel. So here is a rather attention-seeking hysterical, or histrionic, I should say, professor of business at Columbia. His name is Shai Davidai. He's originally from Israel. And here's how he responded to protests on Columbia's campus that were calling for support for Palestine.
3: This message to get to every parent who sent their kids to Columbia University.
4: So
0: he's saying he's sending this message to every parent who sent their kid to Columbia University. Before this starts, by the way, he very uh, coincidentally wants urges everyone to take out their ca- their phones to film him so that everyone gets this message. Okay.
3: And trusted their kids
4: and their children's safety with us. Sorry, more tech issues. Sorry, Katie, I'm going to have to
5: re-upload that. Can I uh, have like one minute? Yeah, sure. Sorry about that.
4: Yeah.
0: Well, this guy is a hoot. So have you guys seen him speak yet?
2: I responded already on, on Twitter, and I will only call it Twitter, to one of his tweets. I, I didn't see that video. But we already hear what he's saying. He's talking about this so-called uh, threatening language, calling for genocide of Jews, etc. What he's referring to is, at least judging by the, the tweets that I've seen it from him, is two things. One is the phrase that has become so controversial: "From the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free," and the other is simply the word intifada These are the two things that that everyone is calling now. You know, I mean, we can break this issue down pretty clearly, and it it, it fits right into what um, our report is talking about. First of all, this is Israelis, Zionists, and frankly, white nationalists—at least Stefanik, telling Palestinians what they're saying. So they are defining from the river to the sea means that all of that area will be without Jews and they will all be killed or driven out. That is not what any Palestinian I know, you know, or or have heard from has ever meant by that phrase. The concept of Palestine, right? For the for Palestinian nationalism, the concept of Palestine is all of the land of Palestine. That is no different than for. Not only Zionists, but also, you know, Jews in general. Here we can talk about both Zionists and Jews who will talk about that land as Eretz Israel. It will mean different things if you're a Zionist or not, right? So for the for Zionists, it means the state of Israel. For non or anti-Zionists, it means the holy land. And if you're religious in particular, it's that land that will eventually, you know, be you know God's province on earth when Messiah comes and Jews will go there and everybody will be happy, and et cetera. But we all have ways of referring to that land. Go back far enough and people call it Canaan or Canaan and several other names. There's an immense and very diverse history in that land. And this is what Palestinians are talking about. That land should be free, not free of Jews, free. Right. People should be free. But, you know, and that is how Palestinians themselves have defined that phrase, whether Hamas uses it or anybody else. When the Kud uses it. They mean something very different. They yeah, project that this will be the state of Israel from the river to the sea, and the Zionist movement will rule it, will decide on those laws, and it will be effectively, for certainly in their vision, an apartheid state that will be permanent. So, you know, an intifada, as we know, literally means shaking off, but it, it means resistance. And it doesn't have to mean violent resistance. The first intifada was overwhelmingly nonviolent there was violence. It wasn't 100% nonviolent. And of course, the violence is all that ever makes the headline. But most of the first intifada, most of the actions were nonviolent. There were strikes. And in fact, those strikes really put quite the scare into Israel at that time because Israel was very dependent on the Palestinian labor force. And that was, it was after the first intifada that Israel started turning to Thailand and the Philippines and other places to bring workers in so that they were not going to be so dependent they still use Palestinian workers, but they weren't, their workforce, their labor force, was not as dependent on Palestinians. So, so widespread strikes could not damage them as much as they did in the first Intifada. So, you know, one thing is they cut off a nonviolent way of doing that. The second Intifada, probably not coincidentally, was considerably more violent. And certainly, you know, resistance can be violent. But saying Intifada does not mean kill the Jews. It means give Palestinians their freedom. And Palestinians, yes, will have to fight for it. And again, fighting does not have to mean violence. There's many very effective tactics that are nonviolent. But, you know, as I'm saying all of this, let's not forget, Palestinians do have a right to resist occupation, as does any other people under occupation, um, whoever they may be. So um, that is what these phrases mean. But um, in our, you know, I mean, and this goes on for decades and decades, how we have distorted the meaning of anything Palestinians say to immediately mean hostility, anger or violence, even to the point of genocide of Jews. That is what, you know, the media portrayal and many of the groups that we talk about in our report put out exactly this kind of material saying this is what all of this stuff means. So now we have this Israeli professor out there on his campus talking about how these are calls for genocide. And, you know, when we say that Jewish students hear that and they get nervous, that's true. They do. They get uncomfortable. They get nervous. They get and some of them get terrified because they've been told that what they're hearing means something other than what it really is. Right. And that is the really, I think, insidious part. Of
1: it. Yeah. Can I just add yeah, a few things? So so first, intifada means the shaking off, right? The shaking off of oppression. And the shaking off of suffering, the shaking off of not just I mean occupation, but being oppressed, and that can come in different forms. We've seen nonviolent civil disobedience, and it effectively it is every time. For example, the college student will just say revolution. Does that necessarily mean right. they're going to go and commit a mass shooting? Of course not. Uh, if, a, if a college student says let's revolt, that the interpretation. Is based on the context, and we've seen that the context here is exercising your free speech rights to and your and your right to assembly, which is granted to you by the U.S. Constitution to engage in protests and sit-ins and teach it. And so the question is, why don't we see that as normal? Why do we see that? Why do we interpret that as threatening? And I also want to know that nobody seems to care at all about the feelings of Palestinian. Right. in america in other words Palestinians and arabs and muslims and i think anybody who humanizes or has some form of human empathy towards Palestinians right now is extremely offended uncomfortable insulted when you have a protest that is adamantly supportive of israel at this moment in time because what israel is doing is in my opinion genocidal, right? They're committing a lot of war crimes. Now, people have the right to do that. But if we're going to base the First Amendment and free speech rights, and especially across campuses, based on how people feel, well, then any protest, any teaching, any event that is supportive of Israel should also be shut down because I can guarantee you, I know I've talked to students, they feel unsafe, they feel insulted, they feel hurt. And the administrators are not reaching out to them. The universities are not creating task forces to combat Islamophobia, to combat anti-Arab racism, to combat anti-Palestinian racism. Universities aren't even taking the time to meet with them, to check in with those students, which goes to show that these Muslim Arab South Asian students are second-class citizens because, effectively, they're being treated like brown and black people have always been treated in the United States. And what I think many Jewish American students need to appreciate is there, especially those that are pro-Israeli, that are supportive of Israel right now at this moment in time, that they are experiencing the privileges of whiteness and they are allowed to engage in white fragility to the extent that it violates their classmates' rights because they don't feel like it's safe or they don't feel like it's comfortable. And that is very different than an anti-Semitic act where someone is physically assaulted verbally abused, where it's something that's individualized, that is absolutely anti-Semitism. But that's not what is being pointed to as the example by the American Defamation League, by the Zionist Organization of America, by the Brandis, Law Center, by all of these Zionist groups who have made it very clear that all they want is no debate, no discussion, censorship. I can't think of anything more anti-American
0: than that. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at this. I just want to show kind of this progression of what this one professor did. Then we'll see how he applied it to what he thinks should be done to students. Then we'll take a look at Elise uh, Stefanik, the, sorry about that, trigger warning, and see how that's arrived at Congress. Okay. So Brad, let's see if we can play that and trigger warning on this video. It's so disturbing. Let's see if we can play that video we tried to play
3: this message to get to every parent who sent their kids to Columbia University and trusted their kids and their children's safety with us. I want this message to get to every parent in America who sent their kids to NYU, to Harvard, to Stanford, to Berkeley. My name is Sai Davidae. I am a professor at Columbia Business School. I am Israeli. But before all of that, I am a dad. I have two beautiful children. And I'm talking to you, I'm speaking to you as a dad. And I want you to know, we cannot protect your children from pro-terror student organizations, because the president of Columbia University will not speak out against pro-terror student organizations because the president of Harvard University, because the president of Stanford, because the president of Berkeley, they will not speak out against pro-terror student organizations. I have a two-year-old daughter, a feisty two-year-old daughter. She has two songs that are her favorite, Baby Shark, i shake it off by Taylor Swift and yet to the pro-terror student organizations on campus here and at Harvard and at NYU and at Stanford and at Berkeley and at Northwestern, my two-year-old daughter is a legitimate target of resistance. That is what they are selling. You are allowed to murder and kidnap my two-year-old daughter. In the name of resistance.
4: Oh, my God.
0: OK, so there he is. I mean, I
1: don't know who he's talking about when he says they
0: <laughs> Pro- probably SJP and JVP. SJP's
1: not thinking about his kids or his family. Of They're course, thinking not. about the Palestinians that are being slaughtered in Gaza. Right. But he's just playing on all these tropes
0: that you guys talk about in the report. And he doesn't have to show any evidence of anything. And lo and behold, Columbia banned SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, and JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace. And let's see what else this guy, this business professor who should stick to, like, business professor stuff, suggested happens. Here's a tweet of his. Intifada, long live the Intifada. Columbia has two choices. Expel organizations that explicitly call for violence against Jews and Israelis. Two, show the world it can't, won't enforce its own rules, and face legal consequences for unequal enforcement. That's one thing he tweeted. And by the way, in both of these tweets, which I just took screen grabs of, I did not go to the actual tweets because I didn't want to dox any of these students or get people to attack the students, but he actually tweeted out videos. So he's trying to dox the students himself. And then he writes, Friday, Columbia University announces that Chance understood as a call for genocide or against school policy. Today at Barnard College, students organizing call student organizations calling from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Columbia, what do you plan to do about this? So he is calling for the punishment of people who are engaging in free speech. Not only are they engaging in free speech, but they happen to not be making genocidal statements because a lot of people are getting into this as a First Amendment issue. And oh, you you can say whatever you want, which is true. But there's another issue here, which is that they're totally misrepresenting what
1: these people are saying. What if somebody, what if an Arab Muslim professor or Palestinian Muslim professor were to go and give this little diatribe he gave and said, any Jew and any Israeli that is saying free the hostages is effectively calling for the genocide of all Palestinians and therefore they're all terrorists and therefore you cannot say free the hostages because what you're, what you really mean is yes, go ahead, Israeli government, treat them like human animals flatten Gaza, ethnically cleanse Palestinians, and effectively create the second Nakba that will be the final solution to ridding and terminating Gaza Palestinians. And so as a result of that, the, the interpretation that a Palestinian Muslim professor has unilaterally decided, right, and has mansplained to all these students that as a result, all Students, especially those that are Jewish in Israel and they're in their support of Israel, now are going to get shut down. They're going to get disciplined. They're going to get investigated because saying something like free the hostages is anti palestinian That's how ridiculous this argument is, right? These students are protesting for human rights. They are calling on their country and the world to save the lives of innocent civilians every single day that goes by. We have hundreds of Palestinians that have been killed by the Israeli military. Every 10 minutes, a Palestinian child, who is certainly not a math member, is being killed by the Israeli military. Where today, I think we've reached 22,000 Palestinian civilians confirmed dead. We have thousands of others missing under the rubble, presumed dead. 45,000 Palestinians injured. And then you have 2.3 million that are being starved and dehydrated to death intentionally by the Israeli government. So when people are going and saying from the river to the sea or intifada, it's clear what they're saying. They're saying, stop these war crimes, stop these human rights violations that are targeting Palestinians.
2: So I guess really quickly, I, I want to add to that because this is way beyond this one professor sure, uh, on this one ca- campus. Uh, this is building off of, you know, we just saw Rashida Tzulib be, be cens- censured or using this very phrase, from the river to the sea, among other nonsensical charges that were leveled against her in that in that resolution. This is that we are now seeing in, in the House of Representatives, we are also seeing this, a new bill that would set up a task force, a, a House, basically a House un-Zionist commission, modeled very much on the House Un-American Activities Committee of the 50s, to interrogate people, not about antisemitism, although that is what they will claim, but everything they talk about is about Israel. That's all it's about. It's about criminalizing the descent of Israel. And this will go, I guarantee. We've already seen some examples of it. This will go beyond the issue of Palestine. And I don't want to minimize that and and say it has to be any bigger than that because we are talking about genocide and, and clearly nothing is bigger than genocide. That is what is going on in Gaza. That is what Israel is attempting in Gaza. It's been what they've been attempting since October 7th. But it it will, as we saw in the United Kingdom, the same issue happened and it absolutely decimated the progressive left. The progressive left was smashed by this issue when Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Labor Party. This is happening here as well. There's a reason this is being led by the same people who are, you know, who are supporting white nationalism, who are supporting Donald Trump. And unfortunately, the difference is, at least when they're talking about MAGA, the mainstream Democrats oppose them. In this, in this case, mainstream Democrats are marching, you know, goose-stepping right, right by their side. We are facing a major crisis just from the point of view of America and what's going to happen here. We are, this issue can force us to abandon our, you know, our academic freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. All of these things are under threat. This is just the first step of it, um, using the tool, the the tool of distorting anti-Semitism. and, you know, and then I'll, I'll be personal about it. I'll be even selfish about it. As a Jew, I know where this ends up as well, okay, because the Jews will end up getting blamed for it along with our Muslim brothers and sisters, because we are also the ones who are standing with our Muslim brothers and sisters trying to oppose this. That's why the groups that that were suspended from Colombia to bring it back to to, to where we started were, SJP, a Palestinian led group, and JVP, a Jewish group. Um, This is, that is exactly how this process gets undone. That's how it is confronted by all of us uniting and standing up against it. But we have to recognize that what's happening here is a major distortion that is built on years and years of redefining Palestinian words, life, and national and personal existence. In this Islamophobe, you know, through all the lens of all of these Islamic, Islamophobic tropes that we talk about in the report.
0: Right. And also selfishly, as a Jew, I'd say that I really would appreciate if Israel stopped pretending to be like acting in the names of, in the name of Jews, because they are engaging in genocide and it's a genocide that lots of Jews don't support. And another thing, speaking of self-interest, is that the more we hear people calling things that aren't anti-Semitic, the more people will uh, become, the less seriously people will take actual anti-Semitism when it does happen. I mean, it's, it's already really like, revolting. It's
2: revolting to it, see. It's yeah. already happened. Real anti-Semitism has completely disappeared from public view. No one even talks about it anymore. The ADL is not, it has completely buried it. And it is only focused on criticism, which is, a weird, weird, look who is leading the anti-anti-Semitism fight. It's Elise Stefanik. This woman is a, a dyed-in-the-wool white nationalist who supports the great replacement theory. I mean, there isn't anything popularly, as popularly anti-Semitic as that, and this is who is the ADL would hold up as a hero. And um, you know, and un- unfortunately, it isn't just Israel; it is the these what I call legacy Jewish groups, which are so well-funded, although they definitely represent not nowhere near all of the American Jewish community.
1: So I also wanted to highlight how, especially as a, as an Arab, so I'm originally Egyptian. I was born in Cairo, and what I have been quite confounded with, as a, as both a Middle East scholar and also as an Arab American and Muslim American, is how so much of the way in which anti-Semitism is understood is about is focused and centered and originates from Europe. And it's as if the Palestinians who really had very little interaction with world jewelry, except for those who were the Mizrahi Jews that had effectively never left, right? That had also been there for centuries. And if you're looking at the late 1800s, the percentage was about 5%, right? Before the various waves or the alias of immigration from Europe. And meanwhile, when... The groups that focus on anti-Semitism discuss the history of it, whether it's the Holocaust, whether it's pogroms, whether it's discrimination in the United States, it's all happening in the West. And again, half of my book, The Racial Muslim, is about the history of anti-Semitism and how the racialization of Jews essentially created this precedent that then has led to the racialization of Muslims right, in ways that hurts their civil rights. So, so it's not that it's not relevant and it's extremely important to talk about. But what I find just so perverse is that you have this group of people, the Palestinians, who had nothing to do with any of that awful history in Europe and then that was extended or transported into the United States, suddenly paying the highest price, oftentimes a deadly price, and then being the face of anti-Semitism when in fact, The entire disagreement is a political disagreement, and it's a land dispute, and it's about two groups of people seeking self-determination. It is not a holy war. It never was a holy war. And all of the various acts or harms to Jewish people in the Middle East, many, again, the Mizrahi Jews who were in Iraq, who were in Iran, who were in Egypt, who were in Syria, all, all of that rose after the establishment. Of Israel, showing again not to justify it, but to explain that it is a political issue. Right, this is not a centuries-old holy conflict or holy war, which is anti-Semitism, the root of anti-Semitism in the West, right between Christianity and Christianity against the Jews. So, so I think we also need to have some intellectual accuracy in our analysis, and this is where I see groups like the ADL being extremely disingenuous and effectively trying to uh, tell Americans that the anti-Semitism you understand, it's not a European Western creation, it's actually the Palestinians. So take all of that real anti-Semitism that's historical and slap it on them. And as a result, now they are experiencing discrimination. And they are the ones who are being uh, repressed. And and, and finally, I do want to state how important it is that we accurately define antisemitism. You know, we had these same debates about Islamophobia right after 9-11, when I was, again, uh, working with a lot of various groups and civil rights groups. And there were some people who wanted a really broad definition of antisemitism, excuse me, of Islamophobia, you know, to the extent that it was, well, if you, criticize me- or, excuse me, if you criticize Saudi Arabia, if you criticize Iran, or if you criticize, you know, Azhar University, which is the oldest Sunni Islamic university, then that's also Islamophobic. And I was very, you know, my position was, no, those are nation states, those are monarchies, those are institutions. You can debate it on the merit, but that's very different than discrimination against a particular person because their religious identity or discrimination against an entire religious group. And I one of the arguments I made was, not only is it just inaccurate, but also it actually puts Muslims in danger. Because at some point, people aren't going to believe us anymore, and they're going to think, but we're using Islamophobia, we're weaponizing it in order to just silence anyone who doesn't agree with our political analysis of Middle East politics or US foreign policy. And so, this debate is not unique to the Jewish American community. But if, but I agree with you, I think that people are the, lo- the most to lose in the long run are Jewish Americans because if anti Semitism means everything all at once, eventually means nothing. And then when it really does happen, people will roll their eyes, shrug their shoulders and say, Oh, yeah, that was, you tried that, you know, with something that nothing anti Semitism hiding moment has to do with it today. So, so I think that's another kind of point of confusion for me of why so many Jews who may be supportive of Israel's politics at least don't draw that line and go, you know, we all benefit as Jewish Americans. To make sure that this is taken seriously, that it is not about political disagreements or political disputes.
0: Right. It's just stifling criticism of Israel, which is how it is so used. I mean, and speaking of making the um, blaming Muslims for anti-Semitism, didn't Netanyahu said that uh, Hitler got the idea for the Holocaust from a Muslim? Do you know that what I'm talking about? There's a clip of that. Yeah, he right? said
2: something a- about he said something about it that, that like the idea for well, not the idea of anti Semitism, but the idea of the final solution. Uh, that supposedly he came up with the idea after speaking to the Mufti of Jerusalem, who was anti-Semitic, but it didn't have any, you know, it didn't have anywhere near the effect that Israel propagandists tried to make it out to be. And he eventually did flee to to Germany and he was taken in by the Nazi government at the time. Well it couldn't go anywhere that, else, right? But I mean the the, the when but I, I will say at least when Netanyahu said that, that's one of those things he did say and but it didn't really stick. And I think most people, even people who think like him, were just like, dude it's too over just the top. a little embarrassing. Yeah, it's yeah. embarrassing. Yeah.
1: So also this fascist regime in Israel, which triggered you know over nine months of protests yeah. by Israeli citizens. I don't think anybody should be listening to a word that Netanyahu says. Yeah, if I were a Zionist, I'd be like, can you stop saying the
0: quiet part out loud? Like we don't want to be legally responsible for genocide, right? Because like part of it, as you would know, Sahara, as a law professor, is the intention. As opposed to ju- not just the crimes, like I was talking to Craig MacIber, who resigned from the UN, and, and over this issue, and he was saying that usually it's really hard; you have to go through all these documents and try to make the case. But Israel, they're just sa- they're just stating their genocidal intentions. As promised, I did promise that we would watch Stefanic just for a little bit. Don't worry, guys. Trigger warning again. And Brad also had some ha- headlines he wanted to show to introduce people to Stefanic to show how well-rounded she is. She's not just a McCarthyite. She's also A white nationalist? Is that what we're going to see, Brad? As you and you said, Mitchell. Of course, Stefanik echoed racist theory allegedly espoused by Buffalo suspect. Oh, and then she tweeted out: The Soros-backed woke prosecutor Alvin Bragg must testify under oath before Congress. Yeah. So there she is. So this is the woman who's going to ensure my safety as a Jew. Uh, Let's let's see what she had to say. With here she is grilling the presidents of. MIT, Harvard, and Penn.
1: Dr. Kornbluth, at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals, not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. Have heard chants which can be anti-Semitic, depending on the context, when calling for the
3: elimination of the Jewish people.
1: So those would not be according to the MIT's code
2: of conduct or rules. We're noting wait, wait, that she's grilling a a Jewish a Jewish woman, yeah, of yeah. MIT. Yeah,
0: Sahar, so you as a as an academic, how would you? Not that you're not also a very impressive analyst, Mitchell. I realize I sound like a real (laughs) classist snob or something. But how would you have responded if you were in that position?
1: Well, I think the first response was correct, where she stated, I have not heard, or there seems to be no evidence that someone is saying what you've just said, that we seek a genocide of Jews. When she said intifada, I would have said "The intifada does not mean that this is the uh, calling for the diaspora Jews and tafada means to shake off oppression of the Palestinians and in fact is not centered around uh, the Jewish actions. It's around. It's centered around uh, Palestinians feeling and experiencing repression and resisting it in the context of the universities. The resistance is through protests, through chants, through teachings, through sit-ins. These are all very American. So I I think it's clear what she's doing is she is redefining a word. She's saying that blue means red. No, blue does not mean red. Blue means blue. And it's clear that this is all in bad faith. But I do want to say something about the white nationalists. Who slaughtered the congregants in the Tree of Life? Synagogue. A white nationalist. Who went to Charlottesville and had a mass protest and said Jews will not replace us? White nationalists, right? Who is going around threatening synagogues and engaging in assault or violence against Jews in America, which is legitimate anti-Semitism? It's white nationalists. This focus on a political dispute takes attention away from the real threat to Jews. And so I think that's another way that the community is being harmed. And if, yeah, I I just, I think that when people who are genuinely interested in anti-Semitism are allying with congressional leaders whose affiliations with white nationalists are known, I, I just, I can't, I think that is deeply unethical. Right.
0: And maybe they're not. You said people who are genuinely interested in anti-Semitism. Right. Maybe they're not genuinely interested in anti-Semitism.
2: I, I would also suggest they're not genu- genuinely interested in law and order. The way we have responded since October 7th has been in in, in, in terms of the campuses and protests and, and all of this stuff, which I, I also think, I, you know, and then not a, we should point out that it's distracting a lot of Americans, of course, from what's actually happening in Gaza. So and that's happening in both directions. And it's intentional. Yeah. and I don't think that's an accident at all. But also to the extent that that it's it's a legitimate discussion, we're focusing on, on the discomfort of Jewish students. Well, What about the Palestinian-American students who were shot in Burlington? Right. What about the Palestinian-American, I believe, well, at least Arab-American student who was run over at Stanford? What about the little Palestinian-American boy who was killed by his landlord? Right. And his mother stabbed and gravely injured. Right. Where are the Uh, hearings on that? Palestinian safety. Not that I want to see anybody. This shouldn't happen to anyone. And I do understand that there is actual rising anti-Semitism that we're entirely ignoring in the name of protecting Israel. But to make the case that we have to focus on the feelings of Jewish students on campus, but that, well, you know, okay, we put the three Palestinian American students who were shot, uh, we put them in the headlines for a day, and then we move on. Same with the same with the little boy. That, and there's no governmental response to this. There's no, no, there's no, government. For no response university there's response. Response. Yeah, universal response. Right. Yeah. And minimal, even minimal media response. There hasn't yeah. there's been, you know, it hits the headlines one day. There's no up. Yeah. Look how much follow up you know, there this, is to every one of these issues on yeah. campus. Yeah. Involves I mean, Jewish I think
1: it, if we were to take this and flip it, because I think analogies help, is if we were in a context where there was uh, a substantial minority of Jews in Iran, and they were being systematically oppressed and they revolted and violently or nonviolently. And then Iran went and disproportionately killed them and slaughtered them and committed war crimes and human rights violations. And Jewish Americans went and had mass protests and allied with Muslims and Iranian Americans to condemn Iran. For its collective punishment of civilians, because maybe a non-state terrorist actor, you know, violate, engage in terrorism, and then the universities and Congress and all the mainstream institutions were to blame the Jewish American students and for defending the human rights of the Jews in Iran, and meanwhile were to make sure that all of the Iranian students who are supportive of Iran or the Iranian-Americans or Muslim-Americans who are supportive of Iran as a country and their politics, were then to have special task forces to, to make sure that they don't feel discomfort, they don't feel a, a sense of sadness, they don't feel any sense of you know being unwelcome or unsafe. This is how perverse the situation is, and I use Iran because there are a lot of people who are pro-Israeli that are very anti-Iran, right?
4: Right.
1: And it's like, we have 2.3 million civilians who are effectively being starved to death. There is no reason, there's no military objective whatsoever for Israel to deny 2.3 million civilians food, clean water, systematically destroy their healthcare system, while indiscriminately bombing residential areas. That is why hundreds of thousands of people across the country and millions of people across the world are out in the streets. They are not out in the streets saying, we hate Jews. That's not what right. they're saying. They're saying yeah. there is a nation state that is violating war crimes at a genocidal level. Whoever that nation state is, this must stop, and we need a ceasefire.
0: We need to wrap, but I wanted to ask the final question, actually. Sahar, can you, in as quickly as possible, Make the case, because I've been having different people who come on the show, explain why they think it's genocide.
1: Can you explain why you think this is genocide? Well, as you stated, you have to show that there is the intent to eliminate in part or in whole a people on account of their ethnic or racial identity. And then there are various um, uh, means through which you would do that. And effectively, the key here is intent, right? And whether their intent is to destroy, even in part, right? The actions they're taking squarely fit within the five uh, ways within the genocide convention. I don't have it in front of me, but there are five different ways that the actions can take place and three are easily met. So it really comes about to intent. And, you know, all you need to do is do a Google search and you will see at least 10 different government officials. Who are high level government officials or former elected officials in the Knesset who have stated things such as they are human animals. We will level Gaza. There will be no Palestinians left in Gaza. This will be their second Nekbah, which is a catastrophe. And the last Nekbah, you know, forcibly and ethnically cleansed 750,000 people, which at that time was a significant percentage of the Palestinian population. So there's plenty of evidence to show. And then you check that you compare that with the actions. Well, they have cleared northern Gaza, they've pushed the Israeli military, has now started bombing central Gaza, and now they've started to bomb south Gaza, right? So ultimately, on the rate, the rate of death, 1% of Gaza's children have been killed. That is the equivalent of 720,000 American children being killed in nine weeks. That's what 1% of America's children are, 720,000. And you now have 10,000, almost 10,000 children that have been killed. And there's about a million children in Gaza, right? And then you look at, um, the, the starvation and the, and the dehydration. Again, no military objective. So people are dying from, uh, getting sick, right? And there's all these, uh, diseases, contagious diseases. So, and if it's not getting any better, it just keeps getting worse. So I think what they're trying to do is kill as many Palestinians as they can and place as many fallacies the near death such that they will all be forcibly moved into Sinai, right? So they may bomb the Rafah border, and then you are just going to see a massive stampede. That's not to say Egypt wants them, and that's not to say that Egypt approves. But if there's one thing we know that Israel does very well, is it creates facts on the ground. To essentially make their objective a foregone conclusion, such as the settlements in the West Bank that effectively killed any possibility of a two state solution. And I'll just, I just want to end by saying what I want to hear from those who are so staunchly pro Israeli and so staunchly anti Palestinian, right? Those who just are convinced that Hamas represents all six billion Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza. I want to know why they're not demanding for a two state solution, why they're not calling on Israel to withdraw the 1 million settlers from the West Bank and remove the settlements so that the Palestinians can actually have a country. Why they haven't been supportive of the two-state solution? Because all all I hear is support for ethnic cleansing uh, or permanent repressive occupation. And that is not an acceptable solution for any group of people. And if it is acceptable, in my opinion, it's based on the racist notion that these the Palestinians are single even animals. And if that's the case, then Israel deserves all the criticism that it is getting and more, frankly. No. And so mm-hmm. would the United States if it was behaving in that in the same behavior. Right.
0: Well, thank you guys so much. This has been wonderful. And you should come back on the show. I have more questions and things I'd love to talk about with you. Thanks
2: thank you for, having. Thank you for having
0: us. Thanks. And we'll link to your report in the description. This has been great and we have more. Really important stuff to bring you. as I said at the beginning of the show, this next part of the show, we are going to be talking about Rafat al-AR, who was an amazing poet and teacher and writer and professor and translator. And he was killed on December sixth. And one of the places that he published a lot of his work was at Electronic Intifada. And so we have two people joining us from the Electronic Intifada. We have Ali Abu Nima and Nora Barrows-Friedman. And as I said, he was a teacher and professor. So we also have someone who's a translator, writer, and video editor, but was also Rafat's student. And that's Mahoud Aliyazi. Welcome to the show. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much for joining. And I'm so sorry for your losses and the world's loss, honestly. And thank you for bringing him onto your streams so frequently. I guess I wanted to ask you guys what you wanted people to know about Rafat and what he was committed to and what he would want us to be talking about and doing now.
6: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Mahmoud El Yazji. I am an English and literature student at the Islamic University of Gaza. And currently, I am studying in Vermont, Castleton University as part of an exchange program. About my professor, my dear Professor Rafat, I met Dr. Rifat in 2021. He was my uh, creative writing teacher at ACAS Project. And he was one of the best teachers I have ever had Dr. Rifat used to be the person who opened our eyes on the little things I personally never paid attention to so Dr. Rifat as a teacher he was always caring about the details about how important the traditions and the small things that we live inside Gaza So. For example, my grandmother, I, I would go through uh, the door of my grandmother uh, every day. I would go from, I live uh, upstairs, she lived downstairs. I would go and pass by every day. And I just say good morning and just uh, keep on my way. And I never thought about sitting with my grandmother and asking her about her stories back then, her, what, what she lived before. And whenever I had this class with Dr. Rifat, he started talking about his grandmother and the stories he had with her and how he would sit with her for hours and just uh, listen to her and listen to her stories and appreciate her words. And it was like, I never done this. And this is like the most, how he made me think about this. Like Dr. Rifat made me pay attention to stuff I would never thought I would notice. And uh, Dr. Rifat after this kept teaching us how to appreciate our culture and how to appreciate our stories, our narratives, and how is it a really good and important part of our lives as Palestinians to convey our stories, to convey our cultures. And uh, I started writing by support of Dr. Rifat I would often often send him stories, and uh, he would like respond and give me advice, edit my story, and enhance my words, enhance how to describe the the narrative. And I owe him so so much, Doctor. He was really a wonderful person who built a big part of who I am. He who who built me as a writer. I now love writing, I write, and getting things out for me in these difficult uh, situations i uh, i uh, I really owe him so much. yeah, he was a wonderful professor. in your question what what would he what he, what would he want us to do right now is actually to keep writing, to keep fighting with our pencils, to keep telling our stories. And uh to just be a Palestinian and fight for it. Because we deserve life and we deserve our freedom.
0: By the way, Mahmoud, if you I should have asked you this earlier, but as Nora and Ali speak, if there's anything you want to share that you've written, like if there's anything you wanna to read to us that you have written, you that please do.
6: Okay. I, yeah.
0: And Ali and Nora. What about you? Actually, I can. I, I thought it, I meant to play this before, but I think this may be a good um, introduction. Then we'll go to Ali and Nora. But this amazing poem that Rafat wrote, I thought we could play it because someone, I want to make sure I get the name right. Someone put this to a really cool animation. Someone named Maya Amer, too, on Twitter. Let's watch this animation of one of Rafat's poems
1: if i must die you must live to tell my story to sell my things to buy a piece of cloth and some strings make it white with a long tail so that a child somewhere in gaza while looking heaven in the eye awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell not even to his flesh not even to himself seize the kite my kite you made flying up above and thinks for a moment an angel is there bringing back love if i must die let it bring hope let it be a take
0: so ali or nora
7: yeah mahmoud it's nice to see you i hope you're doing okay i hope your family is doing okay in gaza despite the horrifying situation and thank you katie you know we're all really still I, I'm personally still in shock at the murder of Lifhad. I can't say it's a surprise because Israel has been systematically targeting and murdering academics, intellectuals, journalists doctors the in, it's exterminating you know when i I was on your show last, I said this was a Holocaust, and that's what it is when you think of a holocaust and they're wiping everyone out. Mahmoud said that he's a student at IUG. IUG doesn't exist anymore. Israel wiped it out. It wiped out most of the universities in Gaza. It murdered the president of IUG. It targeted in, hit him in his home, Dr. Sofia Tayeh, a top scientist in Gaza, in Palestine, and the president of IUG. Rafat al arir If we just go by his titles, it really doesn't tell you the story. Rifat was a professor of English literature at IUG, and that was an important part of his identity. But uh, it's only a small part. It's hard for me to describe to you Rifat in the in the last few days uh, since he was murdered on Wednesday, December sixth, in a targeted assassination by Israel at his sister's home in Gaza. He was murdered along with his sister and three of her children and his brother and one of his brother's children. And a few days earlier, Rifat had been with his family in a UN shelter when he received a phone call uh, from someone identifying himself as an Israeli officer and told him that the Israeli forces knew where he was and that they were advancing towards where he was. Of course, this is in a context where Israel has arrested many of the of, of Gaza's civic leaders and figures, including, for example, Dr. Mohammed Abu Salmiya, who's the director of Al Shifa Hospital, which Israel raided and destroyed after telling outrageous lies about that there was a command center underneath it. And Dr. Abu Salmiya is now held in incommunicado by Israel. So Riff had received this phone call. He went to his sister's home, perhaps thinking that it was less conspicuous than an overcrowded UN shelter. And perhaps also, and I'm sure of this, because he didn't want to endanger all the other people in the school by staying there. And the missile that was fired at the uh, building where he was targeted just at that one apartment. So it was very clear that this was an assassination. Um, his assassination followed an incitement campaign online, uh, which uh, was coming from a lot of prominent pro-Israel voices, including Barry Weiss, the former New York Times writer, opinion client. I'm not even sure what Barry Weiss is now, but She was inciting against him over a joke he told on Twitter. That joke was about one of the many fake stories Israel told about October 7th. This fake story, this lie, this blood libel that Palestinians had baked a a Jewish baby in an oven. This came after the fake story of 40 beheaded Jewish babies. And had made a A joke mocking that lie. And uh, Barry Weiss and other anti Palestinian, violent anti Palestinian racists spun that as if Rifat was like celebrating the murder of Jewish babies an utter lie, an utter disgusting lie. But it ended up killing him. The fact he told a joke, and Barry Weiss put a target on his back, and the Israeli army killed him. And Rifat was incredibly funny. For the past few months, I was texting with him almost every day, except during the days when the internet cutoff made it impossible. He never complained. He described utter horrors that he was going through, that his family was going through, that everyone in Gaza was going through. But he never complained. He always said, we are fine, alhamdulillah and he did his best to help people till his very last day. And, you know, what can we say about Rifat? He has been, Mahmoud is one of hundreds of students that he has taught and trained and turned into confident and wonderful writers. And we're proud that Mahmoud is one of the contributors to the electronic intifada. And Mahmoud wrote a beautiful tribute to Rifat, which I think Maybe we can even flash on the screen just to show people. And uh, Rifat has been called the man who taught Gaza to speak English. He's also been called the storyteller of Gaza because he, through his teaching of English and teaching of English writing, he opened Gaza to the world and he opened the world to young people in Gaza who've been living under siege Therefore so many years, cut off from the world. And I'll just say in closing that, I mean, as you can see, we could go on endlessly about Rifat, but he played such an important role for the Electronic Intifada because he introduced us to so many wonderful writers. If you go over to the Electronic Intifada today, you see that we're publishing more original reportage from the ground in Gaza in the English language than I think any other publication in the world. And almost all of those writers are people who have been trained by Rifat or nurtured or mentored by Rifat. And during this war, during the bombardment, he never stopped working. He never stopped doing that work he loved. He would be helping writers in Gaza to write while the bombs were falling. He would be sending me their articles by WhatsApp. He would be introducing me to new writers when he couldn't find food for his children. So he played a tremendously important role. We had him on the Electronic Intifada's live stream five times, I believe, during the past two months whenever we could, but it was so hard to get him because of the connectivity. And the last time was just a week before he was murdered. We had him for a brief period until electricity cut out, but he was a wonderful person. He was, I'll say, he was the, kind, he was the rare person that knew hundreds and thousands of people. And each and every one of you, one of them will tell you, that he paid intense attention to them personally, he cared for them personally, and you felt that when you talked to him that you were the only person in the world. And This was a man who had responsibility for dozens of family members in the last few months to try to look after and care for amid this genocide, and yet he continued to support everyone. He supported me. He comforted me far more than I could comfort him these past two months. And I can't say enough about him and how angry I am at his murder, along with the murder of so many other people in Gaza right now.
0: I also want to say that in addition to Barry Weiss, who tweeted about Rafat, you also had Jen Smith, a reporter at Daily Mail, who wrote a piece called Palestinian professor previously published by the New York Times makes sick joke about claim Hamas baked, all caps, baby in an oven. So I'm sure that also brought a lot of negative attention to him, the fact that she would write this article. And what's interesting, of course, is nowhere in the article does she say that it was based on something that was untrue, nor does she say, but babies have been murdered. Not that she'd say that, but babies have been killed. Palestinian.
7: One, Palestinian uh, Yeah, Palestinian babies, thousands, but in the whole of October 7th, and all of Israel's lies are starting to unravel now about October 7th, the lies about the mass rapes, the lies about the supernova rave, where it's now becoming increasingly clear that Israel Israeli helicopters killed many of the people there. We don't know the exact number, but today in the Israeli press, We just published an article at the Electronic Intifada by our colleague Gesu and Stanley citing the Israeli army now admitting that there were, in their words, immense amounts of friendly fire on October 7th. I digress, though. The one thing I want to add, though, uh, Katie, is that the murder of Rifat on December the 6th was the second attempt on his life because Israel attacked his own building, his own apartment building in Gaza City in late October, and at that time he and his family were displaced, and then they were displaced several more times from their home. And at one point, a few days after his home was bombed, he said to me that a neighbor had been able to go over and see, he said, our building was almost completely, you know, it was damaged beyond repair, and he said the books The thousands of books I collected over 30 years have been destroyed. And I replied to him, I said, Rifat, the books can be replaced. You can't be replaced. So we don't mind about the books. We're just glad that you're safe. And he said to me, he answered in these exact words, all those pieces by my students, that's what keeps me going. This is how committed this man was. To his students and to his broader mission, of informing the world about Palestine and telling the truth through stories and and reportage.
0: There's actually, Nora. I'm going to ask you, of course, about your memories, but I thought uh, it would be good to show this one clip that actually is from a stream that you guys did, because there's so much pain and it's so unbearable. I keep hearing people use that word, which it really is. But there was a, a message that you just said, Ali, that he would comfort you. And there's a moment in this stream where you are apologizing for failing him, as you call it. And he tells you that so that you didn't fail him. This is the clip called He Didn't Fail.
7: I, I just wanted to say I think one of the hardest things to come to grips with is that the people who Always scream the loudest about the Holocaust and say never again, never again, and we have to learn the lessons of history. Particularly American and European leaders are the ones who are most actively supporting this Holocaust in Gaza. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a genocide in Gaza. They're sending airplanes full of bombs to drop on Palestinian babies, and. Uh, this is the thing that has, has, for me, broken broken any sense, I, any belief I have in all the supposed principles we were taught to uh, revere. Human rights, international law, democracy. The people who come to lecture us about human rights and democracy and international law are the ones who are doing this to you, to your family, to 2.3 million people in Gaza. They're the ones who are doing this, the ones who build museums to the Holocaust and say, we need to take Palestinians and Arabs to these Holocaust museums to uh, educate these savages and barbarians, jungle people, as Joseph Burrell, the uh, EU foreign policy chief, called them. They're the ones, the White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre said that calls for a ceasefire for Gaza are repugnant. What kind of world do we live in where calling for a ceasefire is repugnant? These people worship war. They worship death. I'm 51 years old and I wake up every day as angry and as enraged and as outraged. As I, as I have been my whole life at what they're doing to us. But, you know, Rifat, they want us to be nice victims. Yeah. They want us to be polite. They, they, they don't like it when we're angry. I get messages saying, oh, you know, you should present yourselves better. You won't win support uh, if, if you're angry. What support did we win for all these years? all these years of advocacy, of meetings, of lectures, of speeches, of meeting with politicians, not one European politician objected to cutting food and water and electricity from children. Not one. I'm saying not one leader. Yes, there were a few politicians, a few members of parliament here or there, but not one leader, not one Arab country not one let's let aside the Europeans not one Arab country of those regimes run by traitors withdrew their ambassadors from Israel or closed their embassies with Israel what is this what is this hell we're living in people come to us for analysis I don't know how to analyze this I don't know what to say to people but we we are our hearts, Uh, uh, in pain, our hearts are broken, when we see this world that allows the scenery that we're seeing in Gaza today, massacre after massacre after massacre of whole families, of 583 children as of this morning. By the time we finish this live stream, the number will have gone up, and people digging in rubble in their bare hands. And this is a world that lectures us about human rights and democracy. I don't know what to say to you, Rifat. I don't know, as as you have said, as Khalil said, he doesn't know how to face his children. I don't know how to face you and to face people in Gaza. And I don't know how to say to you that I'm sorry we failed.
8: I think thank you, Ali. I I think we didn't fail. We did not. And that's when it when it comes to all comes to end. No, we didn't. We didn't submit to their barbarity. We didn't submit to their brutality. And even when Gaza, this attack came when Gaza was in its weakest time possible. Look at what they did to the most invincible army in the area. The fourth strongest army in the world. The humiliation. The humiliation. But it's not only about that. This is not where we get our pride. We get our pride from staying principled. At a time when everybody is not. I saw a friend... uh, you know, trashing somebody saying like he was posting some anti anti-Semitic uh, stuff on uh, on Twitter, replying you know with anti-Semitic things, and he was like, "Don't do this. We're not we're not them." And I was I was very proud. It it is at this time that people can be their metal can be tested, who they are, their character. Those people failed miserably. We didn't. They failed because when it came to the Ukrainians, blonde hair, blue eyes, everybody was sending money. Everybody was posting, even the Israelis were posting pictures, how to make uh, 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 cocktail Molotovs. How little children are carrying guns and fighting the Russian barbarians. Politicians sending money, billions of dollars, competing to send billions of dollars to Ukraine. But when it came to people with darker skin, they failed, and they failed miserably. And I don't want to say I don't know how they sleep, because they don't have a conscience. There is this anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim sentiment that is deeply rooted and normalized in in the media. In, uh, in, in among politicians, it's 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 always been there, but it has just been exposed. And I think there has to be this day, this week has to be a time of, you know, reconsideration. Muslims, Arabs, pro-Palestinians, free people around the world. There has to be something that comes out of this, something stronger than before, more powerful. To learn the lesson that those people are in, like they, they are unreliable. They cannot because some of those people even Bernie Sanders and I don't want to name names because. But they were horrible. I don't want to. Name the names. names. Now the names. is the time. People exactly, people in the in the Congress, and everybody saw this. Israel was heading towards a genocide. And you post 10 tweets explaining why what happened from the Palestinians is wrong, for God's sakes. So I Ali, I think we you didn't fail. We didn't fail as Palestinians. We stayed principled believing in, we don't want war. We don't want war, we, we want it to end. We want it to, uh, because only poor innocent people get killed and the politicians benefit, they get more money. And the companies, the arms, there was somebody posting uh, the uh, stocks of for, for uh, uh, companies, forgot the names, uh, skyrocketing. And they know this, this is beneficial for them and for Israel. In Israel, for Israel, this is, again, it's a cash, Gaza is a cash cow. In 2014, uh, uh, according to one Israeli uh, economist, uh, more than 70% of uh, the money that came to Gaza reconstruction ended up in Israeli coffers. This is, but it's, it's not about the money now. This is about displacing, pushing Palestinians to Sinai, to the sea, or killing as many of them as possible, or making them, killing all the intellectuals, all the leaders, whoever they are, and then Palestinians uh, israelis and can live in peace for ten twenty years they can okay you can live in because there were times when Israel lived in relative peace with the with with the subjects the Palestinians but what happens in two
7: decades or three decades Rafat uh, we're supposed to be the ones sending you love and support in Gaza and, uh, you, you, uh, uh, are, uh, reassuring us and raising our spirits. And, uh, we have tough moments and, uh, we all do. I'm sure we all have. And, uh, Our belief in this cause is unshakable. Uh, I hate to use that word because it's the word Joe Biden uses for US support for Israel, but truly our faith in this cause is unshakable. And uh, we we will never give up. We will never give up. And we know that our elders, our parents, uh, grandparents, who lived through the Nakba, who lived through wars, who lived through intifadas, saw things that are just as horrible. We know Israel's history. Uh, We think about all of the, the, the black pages of history written by Israel and they never lost hope and they never lost their determination and we won't either, I just want to make that very clear. And thank you. Thank you, everyone.
9: Thank you so much. Hmm. It's always like this, both. So good to see clips like that and to know that, that Ali and I have been a part of that. Mahmoud was a part of his life for so long in so many ways. And still, when I see his face or, his, or hear his voice, it's, it kind of it cuts really deep. I felt um,
7: like I could speak because I'm yeah. looking at that. It's like it's transporting me almost as if we were live with Rifat again. And, yeah. and
4: yeah.
7: it was very yeah, tough to watch, but also comforting. I
6: don't
4: know yeah.
7: if you saw that before, Mahmoud. Did you see that before?
6: Yes, I did. And I saw the, the one when he was talking to you while the bombardments. Yeah, started. I had that one too. Yeah yeah I actually one of the ways I also like get thoughts from Dr. Rafat was just watching him in live, watching him in streams, watching him just organizing everything like I always wonder Dr. Rifat has many things to do like he does a lot of things training in many places mm-hmm. and at the same time you said it, he makes us feel like we are the only one in there in his life and I was like how incredible he is to do all of this, time management and life management. So I was always inspired by Dr. Rafat in
4: many ways.
9: And Nora, what do you want to share about Rafat? Well, I think both Mahmoud and Ali said a lot. of the Same sentiments that I have. I, I just, you know, I just keep thinking about the texts that, you know, we had back and forth in the weeks leading up To his assassination, and there was one. I was actually in Chicago with my colleagues about a month ago, and um, my son, who's seven, was back home, and he and my husband went to uh, the Palestine demonstration uh, here in the Bay Area. And my seven-year-old, he's like, I don't know how two introverts created an extrovert, but that's who he is. He's this beautiful. Very like you know, just joyful, bouncy guy, and he wanted to lead the chants at the protest, and so so he led you know these he had a someone gave him a megaphone and he was you know sitting on one of our friends' shoulders and he was leading the chant, and so I got the video and uh, later that night I talked to my kid and he said I really want you to send this to Uncle Rifat, <laughs> I want your friends in Gaza to. To see that, you know, that we did this thing today. And so, of course, immediately I texted it to Uncle Rafet. And the next morning I got a text from him just, you know, just so grateful. And like he said, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, something like that. And, And we just kind of had this like, I don't know, this very like sweet and playful rapport. From over the years. I mean, just in the past, you know, week since since he was taken from us, I do the thing when he mourns somebody in this day and age and you're going through your digital, you know, history of conversations. And so I was like going back through emails between him and I since like 2013, 2014, you know, talking about work stuff, having him on the EI podcast several times over the years. Talking about his, uh, like, when I published my book with the same publisher that he published, Gaza Writes Back, which is right over there. Um, in just World Yeah, Just World. I said, like, I'm so proud to be, like, published, you know, in the same publisher that you have. And, you know, we'll have to go and celebrate. You know, I'll come to Gaza and we'll celebrate and, you know, we'll talk about books and stuff. And he said, I don't want to talk about books. Let's just go get food, you know? <laughs> He, he, just, he,
7: he loved food. You yeah, know. he was he really into food. food. And but I he made
9: a terrible mistake,
0: apparently, which is that he preferred deep dish to thin. Crust. I think he
7: just preferred <laughs> us in Chicago, to be okay. honest. I mean, he came to the United States in 2014. It's very difficult to get anyone from Gaza to the United States, but our friend Jennifer Bing at the American Friends Service Committee was able to organize that. And he came to the U.S. in 2014 along with Yusuf Gemel, another writer from Gaza who is now in Istanbul, who also writes for the Electronic Intifada. He's also a translator and editor. He's published books of his own, uh, another student and close friend of Rifat, He came with Yusuf and Rowan Yaghi, another of the contributors to that book, which really embodied a vision because it's all young writers that he mentioned writing fiction because he believed that fiction was a kind of a different kind of truth-telling that could, of course, cross boundaries in a way that sometimes other kinds of writing can't. And he so they came to the US and they did this tour with the book and they went across the country. And I met them in different places along the way, sometimes we were just in the same city. Other times we did events together. And I think we were uh, together in Washington, DC, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, and then in Berkeley, California. And Nora, we were all there together then because that uh, we did an event at the Middle East Children's Alliance. And we just had such fun. I mean, Rifat was a fun person to be with. He was he laughed at everything. He made a joke about everything. He enjoyed life. He loved life. And so one of his friends, a very touching uh, account of Rifat's last days was given actually in a voice recording by Asim and Nabi, who is a close friend of Rifat and spent a lot of time with him in his final days. And I just want to try to... We know we're now publishing so much on EI, mostly of Rafat's students, I have to say, that it's like stories disappear off the front page. But I'm going to put this in the chat and maybe we can put it up.
0: But also. Awesome. I have this, by the way. Sorry? Here's you
7: and Rafat. Oh, yeah. That was in Chicago in 2014 when he first tasted the deep dish pizza at the Giordano's pizza shop just not far from where I'm sitting. And every time I pass by there, I can only think of Rifat now. But Asim, his friend, said the made an important point is that Rifat was such an accomplished person. He had studied in the UK at King's College, London, and then he did his PhD in Malaysia. And he could have lived anywhere in the world. He could have gotten a job anywhere and lived a very comfortable life, but he refused to do that. He chose to go back to Gaza, to the most difficult conditions, and to teach at IUG, uh, students like Mahmoud and so many others, because he believed in them, and he believed that was how he could make his contribution. And I just think, you know, I can't say enough about, I'll just say the thing about the food. I don't know how in, in the chats you know i was embarrassed because i'd heard him in the live stream and on his tweets over the past two months talking about how little food there is available in gaza because it's you know i mean it's a horrifying situation he talked about rationing water and giving you know food to the children and the and the parents going without which is now the situation everyone's facing but then in the charts he's talking about delicious food and like i'm too embarrassed to answer because like how am i going to answer how am i gonna respond to rifat's musings about uh, you know various kinds of dishes he likes with someone who has no food and it was just but it just he never lost that that joie de vivre even in the most difficult and horrifying conditions and if he did he never showed it to us
0: And. Why did they, I mean, can you guys just explain for people who don't know about this, why Israel targets people like Rafat?
7: Well, they've said it. They said they want to destroy, they want to make Gaza unlivable. Netanyahu cited Amalek, you know, basically destroy everything. Other Israeli leaders have said it. Look what they're doing. The Israeli army itself is posting videos of themselves proudly dynamiting the universities, the hospitals. Who does that? I mean, today they posted themselves dynamiting a UN school and then laughing about it. And as I said, I can't stress this enough, they have systematically assassinated the top people, the most accomplished people in Gaza the list of senior doctors. They dynamited the IUG medical school. They murdered the president of the university. As I said, it's now over 70 journalists, and these journalists are targeted. I mean, yesterday, the journalist Anas sharif was reporting live on Israel's barbaric attack on Jabalia refugee camp, or was it Shujaiya, but it was in the east of Gaza, Live on Al Jazeera, he reported about that, a few minutes later, the Israelis bombed his house and killed his father. And remember, they killed the family of Wael Dahdur, the Al Jazeera correspondent. I mean, they are monsters, Katie. There is nothing like them. They are the worst people. I mean, you, you cannot, in modern history, find a crueler, more merciless, more psychopathic regime than this. I just don't have the words for it. They want to destroy Gaza as a society. And Mahmoud can tell you, I mean, I'm gonna ask Mahmoud, tell us about Gaza because Americans think Gaza it's just a war zone. It's just uh tell us about your Gaza. So katie I have personally lived five wars in
6: Gaza Strip. And when we are in wars there are some rules that we grew up in as children and as young men in gaza in wars so when the worst when the war starts there is always a reduction of food a reduction of every basic thing in life such as electricity and everything that is necessary to live and then there is this moment when we hear the f-16 so the f-16 warplane is a sound where we expect to die and i being here and remembering how it feels to be under this sound and how my family right now is there and when this sound comes we would uh usually hold our hands together and just uh, pray to God. And we rasulullah," which is uh, the last words that a Muslim, the good last words a Muslim, can say. So each moment in Gaza in wars is like dying from inside and probably dying also, like actually dying because it can, like the gap between you and death in Gaza is how much the missile takes to fall from the F-16 to your house. And this could happen any moment. Right now in Gaza, I personally lost my house. I lost my university. My family are displaced and they are now in a school. My father is 65, my mother is 59 and they are sleeping on the floor. They have diseases, they have high, high hub blood pressure and other diseases. All my sisters and their families are displaced and living in such situations. And it's not somewhere to live in Gaza, especially in wars, it's not a place to live. It's not somewhere anybody would wish to be in the war. It's really terrible. And just the sounds of explosions around and like, your heart sinks with every loud explosion and you just wish, like, please, Allah, please protect us, please save us. Please have this to end soon because we can't bear it anymore. And this has been the toughest aggression on Gaza since a lot of years. Since the past year, since the last aggression, this was the toughest because you see what's happening right now. And sadly, we have to explain our humanity. We have to explain over and over that our children are being murdered. Our children are being killed to the people around. And it seems like it doesn't work. No, like, no ceasefire till now. And every day I post in my Instagram, I was like, ceasefire. Every minute a child dies there. Every minute a lot of people are killed. A lot of people are displaced. A lot of homes are being destroyed and it's getting worse and worse.
0: I'm sorry. I know that's uh, an insufficient thing to say, but... I, I, I do have many
6: memories of war and nearby buildings fall, like get bombed while we are nearby and you just feel like your life ended. For one second, and then, like, you find yourself alive because the bomb, when it falls, it shakes everything around you so hard to the moment that you can't even see. Like, it just shakes and shakes the building, and
4: like, you feel like you're about to die. This is how it is when the bomb falls. And how
0: often do you get to be in touch with your family?
6: I have not contacted my parents since the truce, like the end of the truce. I often send messages to my brother. He would respond after three or four days after like finding a spot to connect to the internet. And I must say, Katie, like I feel really guilty with everything I do here and think of my family. Even right now I'm sitting on a chair I have my bed right beside me and, uh, and just keep thinking of my family because they don't deserve to go through this. Nobody deserves to go through this. They deserve a life.
7: And if I may say they had a life, and this is the thing that I want people to know because I only went to Gaza once in my life. I spent a week there 10 years ago in 2013, and. It was before the coup in Egypt, when it was still a little bit easier to get into Gaza, and I was able to go to Gaza in May of 2013. And uh, what struck me about Gaza was how lively and vibrant a society it is. It's a vibrant society. It's It's a beautiful part of Palestine. It has a beautiful coast it has a beautiful society, it's a tight-knit community. I mean, you would go, in that week, I traveled from Gaza City to Rafah, which is all the way in the south, for different events and different things. And, you know, people know each other in Gaza, it's a very tight-knit community. And I met so many people, Mahmoud, you would have been very young in 2013, so I wouldn't have met you, but I met a lot of university students, people who are university students at that time. And the one thing that I remember most, and that they told me, they said, this is what you want to know, what will we want you to know. They said, the siege is difficult, you know, but our problem is not the privations that come from the siege. It's not the lack of the basic materials and things like that. And there were times when the siege was tighter and there were times when Israel eased it a little bit. They said the real thing we suffer from is the isolation. The fact that it it was virtually impossible to get in and out. That's why it was such a miracle when we were able to have Rifat and Yusuf come to the United States. I think Rowan was in the UK at the time. And the level of ambition of young people in Gaza, Uh, you know, there's the hunger to communicate with the world, to be connected with the world, to be part of the world. And that's why, you know, it's like, I'll tell you this, I'm going to tell you some some inside secrets of the electronic, not, you know, the electronic intifada. We struggle to find writers in the West Bank who can write in English I mean, people can write, in, people do write for us in Arabic sometimes and we translate it, but generally we don't have the resources to do that routinely. So we like to look for writers who can write in English and we have a hard time finding them. In Gaza, we don't have a hard time finding writers. And I, I don't know, Mahmoud, what do you think? Is that entirely due to Rifat? It's a lot, in large part due to Rifat.
6: Yeah, I swear to God, like, Everyone who writes well has been trained by Dr. Rifat. We call yeah. him like me, we call him the legend because he was a legend. He teach all of us. Like he was, in, he was involved in many creative writings and writings program. He also like, by the way, taught me, taught me poetry and Shakespeare. And I can't even begin to express how wonderful he was in poetry. And the way he explained and taught. And as I always said, he always influenced me and taught me, even by the way he walked sometimes because he's an amazing person. And yeah, like he he contributed to a lot of writers and he introduced us and helped us to connect to Electronic Intifada, We Are Not Numbers and other outlets. He wanted us to be successful. A part of being our teacher, he was like a father and like a friend. So in the war, he would ask about me and tell me, like, did you publish anything? And if I said no, it's like, why didn't you publish anything? And encourages me to write and to actually uh, send publications and, and write and make my voice there, out there. I really miss Dr. Rifat, and the video you displaced minutes ago reminded me of his lectures where I used to watch them actually for educating myself and I was actually enjoying them because in other lectures I I might have not been as active, like I wanted to just uh, get done and do my homework, but with Dr. Rifat's lectures. It was always interesting and fun to watch and very valuable. He had so much knowledge that could fill the world. And uh, speaking of how beautiful Gaza is, I was telling my friends there, here, sorry, that whenever I got bored in Gaza, I would just go downstairs. I would find my uncle sitting on the street talking. The falafel cellar is uh, just outside the corner. I could call my, my friends, go eat falafel and just walk in the streets and go to someone's house, spend the night. And uh, unfortunately, I, I lost many of my friends, including my best friend, Muhammad, who uh, we were always spending time in his house and, uh, doing a barbecue eating together and i want to say muhammad also would have loved to be here as well talking about dr rifat because dr rifat was really pushing muhammad to be better and uh, allah but
4: may, may they
6: both meet in heaven i
4: yeah
7: Muhammad also wrote for the electronic intifada. He wrote one article, and according to your friend Khaled, I mean, he was working on another article for us, but Khaled told me the other day how excited Muhammad was that he was um, preparing another article. And Muhammad Hamo was one of four contributors to the electronic intifada who, so, who have been murdered by Israel in this genocide. I hate to say so far, but until yeah. it stops, nobody is safe. And there, are, of course, uh, Hud al-Susi, Ra'ad Qaddoura, Muhammad, and Rifahed, and Ahmed Aburtema, who is another very prominent figure in Gaza, a poet, a writer, a f- very frequent contributor to the electronic intifada. Most prominently one of the organizers of the Great March of Return, the 2018 mass nonviolent movement, which brought tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to protest the siege, and Israel responded by shooting them with snipers, murdering and maiming thousands of unarmed people.
0: Children, uh, journalists, medics. Sorry? I was just saying children, journalists, medics. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, all. as usual for
7: Israel. But uh, Ahmed al survived survived at the end of October, survived an assassination attempt. His house was targeted and bombed. He survived, he was injured. Uh, his 13-year-old son, Abdullah, was killed, uh, along with other members of his family. Two of uh, um, Ahmed's other two children were also injured uh, and, thank God, survived that just gives you a sense of the scale, that of the, you know, I did a rough count. I think we currently, you know, work with about two dozen writers in Gaza on a regular basis. And we know of four who have been killed. I mean, it's just a horrifying, horrifying scale of murder for the sake of murder, for the sake of revenge. And we're told this is Western values. We're told that Israel shares our values. Apparently, we do share Israel's values because the u s is sending is airlifting round the clock the bombs, the mortar shells, the missiles to do this. And Joe Biden could stop it with a phone call, yeah. could phone Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary. Today they're saying, oh, Biden is saying the indiscriminate bombing has to stop. Well, all Joe Biden has to do if he meant that is pick up the phone to the defense secretary and say, Mr. Secretary, stop the airlift of bombs to Israel. And the the massacres would stop within minutes. That's what um, Ronald Reagan did. I mean, we're, we're favorably comparing Ronald Reagan to Joe Biden. That's where this has gotten. But in 1982, when Israel was doing exactly the same as it's doing now to Gaza, Uh, But they were doing it to West Beirut. I was uh, 10 years old at the time, but I remember it. You know, I mean, our whole lives are punctuated by Israel's massacres. And uh, Israel was just carpet bombing West Beirut. And even Ronald Reagan was horrified. And he picked up the phone to Menachem Begin, the Israeli prime minister at the time, and he said, Mr. Prime Minister, this is a holocaust. It has to stop. Ronald Reagan said this is a Holocaust. And uh, Begin replied, Mr. President, I think I know what a Holocaust is. Uh, your eye roll is correct there, uh, Katie. Um, but then, uh, uh, according to the witnesses, uh, you know they hung up the phone and 20 minutes later, Menachem Begin called back, called President Reagan back and he said, Mr. President, I told Ariel Sharon, the defense minister, to stop the bombing. Joe Biden could do that now.
4: Yeah.
0: Awful. Yeah,
7: yeah well, don't believe anyone who tells you, oh, it's complicated. And yeah. all, you know, all these hand-wringing yeah. stories in the Washington Post the New York Times about, oh, behind the scenes, the Biden administration is trying to convince Israel to protect civilians and, to be more precise and all this, it's all bullshit. If they wanted, if they really wanted to stop this, they, all they have to do is say to Israel, stop it. And Israel would stop it because Israel cannot do this without the round-the-clock airlift. They'd run out of bombs in three days.
0: Yeah. And Israeli, so who, who was it? I have an IDF major general, retired, Major Yitzhak Brick said, All of our missiles, the ammunition, the airplanes, it's all from the U.S. The minute they turn off the tap, you can't keep fighting. You have no capability. We can't fight this war without the United States, period.
7: Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. That's the truth. And all this bullshit that I'm saying, you know, people need to know this, Katie, because all of this is just to fool people so that they'll vote for the Democrats oh, look how upset Joe Biden is about what Netanyahu is doing. It's just window dressing. It's just to fool people because Biden didn't, wouldn't even have to say a word publicly. All he'd have to do is pick up the phone in the Oval Office and say, stop the massacre, and it would stop.
0: Yeah. But then, uh, Ali, now comes the chorus of people telling you, it's often white men who will tell someone like you, so you want Trump?
7: (laughs) I mean, you know, Katie, look, that's not my problem. I just, I mean, it's like people are saying, this is the worst case scenario for us. There is no worst case scenario than genocide. You can't threaten any of us with Donald Trump.
0: I wasn't doing that, obviously. I was channeling that. No, no. Yeah, I'm saying yeah, that to right.
7: the people who say, you yeah. know, it's like, you can't threaten me with Donald right. Trump because this is the worst case scenario for us. It doesn't get worse than this.
0: So disgusting. I actually have that. And this um, more, uh,
7: The sad thing is, it's like, we're seeing now, like, there, are, I don't want to get into into the U.S. political stuff, but... There's almost more criticism of Israel these days coming from certain segments of the right Mm -hmm. than from the Democratic Party. I'm not talking about the base of the Democratic Party, because 80% of Democratic voters want to ceasefire. 57% of Republicans want a ceasefire. I've never seen that in my lifetime. In more than 30 years, I've never seen that. And that that's how much the political class in this country is just completely detached from, rea- from the people, from morality, from basic humanity and decency, and attached to just psychopathic, constant war. These people went from, I mean, let's just start in 2021, let's not even go back the hundreds of years, because the U.S. has never not been at war either against the indigenous people of this continent or the rest of the world but they left afghanistan in defeat in humiliation in august of that was 2021 right and the helicopters and the horrifying scenes of people falling off the airplanes and people comparing it to vietnam and saying this is the worst defeat since vietnam after 20 years of lying Then they immediately went into the proxy war in Ukraine. We don't have time to go into all the background, but that war was completely unnecessary. The United States provoked it. I entirely agree with John Mearsheimer on this. And then they they lost that. There's a story in the New York Times yesterday, I tweeted about it, about how the big Ukrainian counteroffensive has failed, and now the U.S. and Ukraine are trying to figure out how to like do another offensive in in a few 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 months time. When now the average age of soldiers in the Ukrainian military is like over forty, and in some units it's over fifty because they killed all the young men. They they've exhausted all the young men. That they're, they're dead. They've killed Ukraine in the name of uh, saving it, and then they do this. Then they support this genocide. And Israel has failed militarily. The great Israeli army was defeated on October 7th. Again, the lies about mass rapes, the lies about atrocities, this is all to distract people from the fact that the resistance in Gaza defeated the vaunted Israeli army. They routed and humiliated the Gaza division, and they continue to do that. You know, I keep saying, if it comes to massacring babies and children and elderly people and destroying schools and hospitals and infrastructure, Israel is by far the world champion. No one in the world beats Israel. But when it comes to fighting dedicated warriors, resistance fighters, defending their land, defending their communities, defending their homes, Israel is taking a beating. The myth of the Israeli army is, has been totally destroyed. They've been in, on the ground in Gaza now more than 50 days. They have achieved nothing militarily. All they're doing is rounding up civilians from shelters and subjecting them to disgusting, humiliating treatment, photo ops, the kind of things the Nazis did. I mean, you see these photos. It's like the Nazis, what they did blindfolding men, stripping them naked, school teachers, journalists, doctors, nurses, just young men who have nothing to do with anything, and humiliating them so that this defeated, cowardly, child-murdering army can get some pictures to show the psychopathic public back home, look how we're humiliating them, look how we're winning. But they can't even stop the rockets coming out of Gaza.
0: So. It's the most moral army in the world.
7: You know, what I want to say, the bigger picture here is the Americans, the United States, keeps pushing its proxies into these catastrophes and has no capacity to learn, none whatsoever. So, So the failure of Afghanistan, then they launch into the failure of Ukraine, and now they launch into the failure of Israel's war on Gaza, which will not destroy Hamas, will not break Palestinians, but it will destroy millions of lives. And I'm not sure what good comes out of that for anyone, including Israel. I don't give a shit about Israel's well-being. I'm not one of these liberal Zionists who says, oh, well, this is bad for Israel. Well, that's the only silver lining, actually, that it's bad for Israel. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I go between just like anger and, you know, this is my mood cycle, so you're seeing it all live. I will stop. Yeah,
0: <laughs> no, but it's what you were saying is, I mean, why would they want to do this? Isn't this because they want to thin out the population of Gaza?
7: to Expel them, and or as Giora Island, the former head of General Giora Island, the former head of Israel's National Security Council, said on Israeli TV, "We're ro- we're rolling out to Two Point Oh." I mean, they don't hide it. They don't right. hide it. It's like. The media here is pretending, oh, well, I mean, are we sure? I mean, we don't know that they're doing all this stuff deliberately. But in Hebrew, on the Israeli title, they say openly, they celebrate. Giora Island, this general, respected general in Israel, he's on every talk show. He's like the David Petraeus of Israel or something. You know, just an utter psychopathic failure, but is considered this, like, great figure. And Giora Island wrote... An op-ed, he writes for uh, one of the big Israeli papers, saying, oh, the World Health Organization is warning that uh, if we don't let fuel and medicine and aid into Gaza, there'll be epidemics. He said we shouldn't be scared of epidemics. Epidemics help us.
0: Right. It would be a good thing, yeah. This is
7: barbarism.
0: Yeah. Well, we actually, I just wanted to show a tweet that you made me think of. Uh, This is a tweet by Daniel Denver which then was quote tweeted by Adam Johnson. And here you can see, so I guess this is from a New York Times op-ed. This package also should not be seen as a blanket approval of Israel's approach to war in Gaza. There are real concerns about the number of civilian casualties in this conflict so far, and the Biden administration has been appropriately vocal about these concerns. In February, the State Department put put strict rules in place to try to reduce the harm, to try to reduce the risk of harm to civilians from the use of American weapons. So far, there is no indication that the United States considers either Israel or Ukraine to be in violation of American policy. And then, as Adam Johnson tweeted, The Washington Post reported the same day this editorial came out that the Biden administration is expressly not reviewing anything Israel does to see if it violates international law. So the reason there's no indication is because the U.S. government hasn't looked and doesn't care. Yeah. Well, Ali, I know you have to go. Thank you so much for your time. Nora and Mahmoud, thank you also. I'm gonna stay. I think I want to show, and Nora and Mahmoud, you're free to stay. But I totally understand if you don't. I was gonna show the great actor Brian Cox. I don't mm. know if you saw this, but he yeah. read Rafat's poem, which is pretty amazing. And then I was gonna show another video of someone reading a a, a poem by Rafat at a protest.
9: But yeah, um, I also have to go. But I but I I just wanted to say with that poem that's uh, that apparently he wrote in 2011. Um, yeah, that's right. in the last yeah. few weeks he but had pinned he, he, to his, yeah. yeah. Um, it's,
4: it's, but it's still, it's Brian just,
7: Cox's reading is awesome and it's, beautiful.
9: Yeah.
7: And <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Shit. It's
9: incredible. And we should and, say, yeah.
7: I maybe mean, you already said it, that his that Rifat's poem has been translated just yeah. in the last week into 260 languages and yeah. counting. And that's, that's just, he'd be so happy. I mean, I know. He, he would yeah. be so delighted.
9: Yeah, it's gorgeous. But thank you so much, Katie. Yeah, thank thanks you, for coming Katie. on. Thank Mahmoud Mahmoud and you, and Ali.
0: Well,
7: Katie,
0: of course. And Mahmoud would come back on. I'd love, love to talk more. Love Great. Thank you okay. guys. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Well. As promised, let's watch actor, let's let's do it. Let's actually show a, a cool, a really cool poem that Rafat wrote that's about, obviously, as you'll see, kind of the relationship between Israeli Jews and Palestinians. I am you, it's called. And this is from a protest that happened last week. And then we'll watch the actor, Brian Cox.
10: Two steps, one, two, look in the mirror, the horror. The butt of your M16 on my cheekbone the yellow patch it left, the bullet-shaped scar expanding like a swastika, snaking across my face, the heartache flowing out of my eyes, dripping out of my mouth, out of my nostrils, piercing my ears, flooding the place like it did to you 70 years ago or so. I am just you. I am your past, haunting your present and your future. I strive like you did, I fight like you did, I resist like you resisted and for a moment I take your tenacity as a model were you not holding the barrel of the gun between my two bleeding eyes. One, two, the very same gun, the very same bullet that had killed your mom and killed your dad is being used against me by you. Mark this bullet and mark it in your gun. If you sniff it, it has your and my blood. It has my present and your past. It has my present, it has your future. That's why we are twins. Same life track, same weapon, same suffering. Same facial expressions drawn on the face of the killer. Same everything, except that in your case, the victim has evolved backward into a victimizer. I tell you, I am you. Except that I am not the you of now. I do not hate you. I want to help you stop hating and killing me. I tell you, the noise of your machine gun renders you deaf. The smell of the powder beats that of my blood. The sparks disfigure my facial expressions. Would you stop shooting for a moment, would you? All you have to do is close your eyes. Seeing these days blinds our hearts. So close your eyes tightly that you can see in your mind's eye Then look into the mirror, one, two. I am you, I am your past. And killing me, you kill you.
0: It's a pretty amazing poem. And here's, as promised, Brian Cox reading Rifat's poem, If I Must Die.
11: If I Must Die by Rifat Alaria, November the 1st, 2023. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings. Make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, Seize the kite. My kite you made, flying up above, and thinks for a moment, an angel is there, bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope. Let it be a tale. Pretty
4: amazing. Then I also want to show a CNN clip that Rafat,
0: which has Rafat's audio because Rafat did an interview with CNN, and I assume he didn't have the capability at that point of doing video. Maybe the connection wasn't strong enough. So here is a CNN report that was published after his death.
4: We count the years by how many uh, wars our, our kids uh, survive.
10: Weeks before Palestinian professor
9: Rafat al was killed by a strike in Gaza, he gave what would be his last interview. With CNN. He gave CNN permission to release the audio of his interview if he did not live through the war.
4: My father, my
8: parents, and my brothers and sisters all had to evacuate. But there's this thing about us moving and, you know, scattering the family members across different places. It's an archetypal Palestinian debate on should we stay in one room? Mm. So if we die, we die together, or should we stay in separate rooms Mm. so at least somebody can live, can survive?
9: Alaria, a father of six, was killed on December 7th in Shuja'aya, Gaza. In his final interviews, he spoke about what it means to be a parent during conflict.
8: The, the, the toughest thing, parents, feeling of helplessness and despair, your inability to provide the protection, the safety, even the love and the hugs. You want to hug your kids like you usually do, but you don't want
4: to do it because you don't want to feel or make them feel that this is like a farewell hug.
0: Yeah. We interviewed him briefly because he didn't have a lot of time. I wish we had... More, but we interviewed him on Useful Idiots. Aaron Mate and I interviewed him and we chatted back and forth a little bit. In fact, let me see, Brad, you have the, yeah, the D, here's some DMs that we had recently. So I wrote, How is your family? And he wrote, I'm the, like, which I can't say, but I think it means God, thanks to God. My little family is fine, scared but fine by, I but scared but fine, couldn't get, hold of my parents and siblings in the past 14 hours with no electricity and bad mobile service. Then I said, is there anything we can do from over here? And he said, thank you for offering more pressure on the media, more coverage, more Palestinian voices, more protests. Hopefully Israel's is curbed ASAP. I watched two streams about Rafat, one organized by the Electronic Intifada and one organized by people like Ali and Susan Abuhawa, who we've had on the show. And someone said that they really thought he was invincible, like he never was going to die, or that he would rise from the ashes like a phoenix. And it's true. Like, he did seem... I was nervous. I was always nervous that he was going to die. But I also kind of thought, like, no, of course he's not going to die. He survived this long, and he's just this larger-than-life character. Good observation, by the way. Coast of Maine. CNN reports he was killed by a strike. He was killed by Israelis who intentionally targeted the apartment he was living in, Name names. Yeah. That's true, and yeah, thank you. It, it, it means all praise to God or thanks to God. Someone, there's
4: debate in the chat, and I hope. I mean, he, his wife, and six children are alive as
0: of now, but it's pretty unbearable. That's like the only word for it. When I spoke to him, he said that he. I asked him about his kids, and he said. Yeah, she. We, you know, my littlest one is seven years old, but we say she's three wars old.
4: There's this other video footage. Brad, do you think we should show the la- his the last appearance with them um, on
0: with in- Intifada? Um.
5: Yeah. If you'd like, I'd also like to just show uh, regarding your comment about being larger than life. This is an image in the Brooklyn oh, yeah. subways.
0: Don't say which borough, because they're trying to find it. In the subways. If I must die, you must live to tell my story. R.I.P. five Yes, someone put that, scratched that into, I guess, cement, right?
5: Yeah, yeah.
4: It's amazing.
5: Yeah, and there's just been moving memorials literally all around the world.
4: Yeah.
5: Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, what if we could show part of the one where he's trying not to cry? We could show that, and then we can end with the last appearance because there's some levity in there and maybe that'll help people.
9: Okay. Um, And, uh, I want to bring in Rifat Alarir. He is a contributor to the electronic intifada. He's in Gaza, uh, right now. Um, Rifat, thank you so much, um, for (laughs) finding, you know, one bar of cell service, uh, and, you know, a, a little bit of battery to join us. Can you please, um, update us on on what the current situation is right now in Gaza. Uh,
8: thank you, Nora, Ali, John, and Asa. Uh, unspeakable uh, brutalities.
7: What we're seeing is is unbelievable. It's unbearable for us <laughs> watching it from the safety of where we are, and it's impossible to imagine. Every couple of minutes, uh, whole
8: buildings are being uh, destroyed. Uh, The roads to Al-Shifa Hospital, I just tweeted that, uh, almost all the roads to Al-Shifa Hospital were destroyed. Uh, So many families, no matter how many tweets you see or how many live streams you watch, the reality on the ground is a lot, a lot more terrible than it is on social media and, and Twitter. And if, if not sure, this is the, the whole room is filled with gunpowder, cement or gulping cement. My hair is uh, filled with dust and cement. And the little kids behind me are uh, terrified uh, uh, in fear, the little ones and we can see the pictures that follow quickly uh, whole buildings residential buildings businesses uh, palestinian infrastructure schools hospitals ambulances uh, medical centers you you don't you don't know whether this is this is it It, we not we we're not uh, we don't deserve this we're not animal like the israelis think uh, uh our kids uh, deserve better israel knows that uh, uh they want to punish the kids the civilians like ali suggested and i have always said this even before uh even from the 90s when Young Palestinians, Ali, say, praise those valiant fighters. They are to be praised. But if you know them in real life, when you see the pictures of those fighters, they're very simple people. They're lightly uh, uh, armed, modestly uh, uh, trained, but they have a, a weapon that Israel does not have, the weapon of uh, the belief, the faith that this is your land, that you're right, fighting uh, a brutal uh, European uh, colonial enterprise that is... Been uh, brutalizing Palestinians for over uh, seven uh, seven decades. The Palestinians are fighting with those people, even from the 90s and the, uh, later on in the Second Intifada. They always, always came victorious when they came face to face with the Israelis. Always cost them loss in so, so many operations. And look at what happened. It's a miracle. Actually, a hundred million miracles that took place, but it's all will planned, meticulously planned by people who have almost nothing except their faith. And those people believe that they're not only fighting for Palestine, they're fighting for the Ummah, they're fighting for a cause that is just, a cause that is, uh, if that should, should not and cannot be forsaken. We believe that if we give up, then. Everybody is going to say, look at the Palestinians, they give up. Why don't you behave like the Palestinians? Why don't you uh, uh, bow down? And Israel knows this, and Israel is punishing not. By the way, the Palestinian fighters, they are inside. They are inside occupied land. And, and many of those people from Shujia, from Jabalia, from uh, Khan Yunis and Rafah and everywhere, they have their parents and grandparents who have land behind the, 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 the armistice line. My grandmother used to to point over there, saying that uh, when Palestine is free, you will be you will be rich because we have a lot of land that we can use to farm to sell, but it's it's not ours because of the Israeli brutal uh, occupation. What I'm saying here briefly is that it's extremely horrible. Uh, the infrastructure it's unprecedented. I'm not exaggerating again. If I'm if I, if I'm saying that this is the Blitz again all over. Like what happened in London by, by the Nazis, uh, unfortunately, by uh, 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 the, uh, the Israeli Zionists who claim to be the descendants of uh, uh, the, the victims of, of the Holocaust, are inflicting yet a similar plight, similar catastrophes against uh, the Palestinians. Uh, we know that it's very bleak, it's very dark, uh, there's no way out. Uh, if if there's no water, there is no uh, way out of Gaza, wh- what should we do? Like, drown? Like, commit mass suicide? Is this what Israel wants? And we're not going to do that. And I was telling some somebody, some friend the other day, that I'm an academic. I Probably the toughest thing I have at, at home is an expo marker. But if the Israelis invade, if the charge at us, charge at us, open door to door, to massacre us. I'm going to use that marker, throw it at the Israeli soldiers, even if that is the last thing that I would be able to do. And this is the feeling of everybody. We are helpless. We have nothing to
4: lose. Anyway, just so sad, awful. I feel... Deprived of not knowing him better. And the world is obviously
0: deprived. And his kids and his wife and his relatives
4: and his sisters gone. I think his brother too. Some were killed this round. Some were killed another one. He was targeted before. It's just, I don't know what to say. Brad, you want to say anything? I'm just,
5: yeah, I don't really have the words. I'm simultaneously incredibly sad and incredibly angry, particularly because at the same time that we are seeing this stuff day in and day out, you know, we've got
4: people like
5: Biden in a room like that saying, were there no Israel? There wouldn't be a Jew in the world that is safe.
0: said a Hanukkah party.
5: As he reaffirms support for Israel, which that's a ridiculous statement.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Makes me feel really safe by them.
5: I mean, I am not, I don't off the top of my head not have the numbers, but isn't it something like a third of all Jewish people on earth live in the United States? Something... A very large amount and so is he saying were it not for the existence of this foreign uh state no jew on earth would be safe like what is that yeah like what does that communicate to jews living in them it, it just makes no sense and then i know we didn't have it for this evening's broadcast but then even today He's reiterating some of the same. Now, what is it, the third time, the fourth time? He's yeah, re- let's show,
0: show my tweet on that. Let's show my tweet. Biden has once again, despite the fact that he already had to walk this back, despite the fact that when he said this, his staff had told him not to say this. This is when Biden famously said the 40 beheaded babies lie. He said that shortly after October 7th despite the recommendations of his staff who told him not to say it because they didn't think it was true. He walked it back. So if you see, if you click on the first, the white house is walking back Biden's statement that he saw photographic evidence of beheaded children. He said it once more since then. And today he said in a speech, I saw some of the photographs when I was there tying a mother and her daughter together on a rope and then pouring kerosene on them and then burning them, beheading infants. Doing things that are just inhuman, totally, completely inhuman, and this was in the speech today.
5: I I hate them. I. Hate
0: it's yeah. The and the debt. By the way, the beheaded. The, it's not to say there weren't atrocities committed on October seventh, but but there have been many more atrocities committed every day since then. Yeah. And the forty beheaded babies is like the pulled out babies pulled out of incubators that lie that they did with Saddam or the WMDs lie. Right. It's just um, fear mongering. And And the fact that he could say this and the media and feel and be smart about it because he shouldn't fear any repercussions because the media will never call him out on it.
5: And I think you probably pointed this out recently too. And I agree with this. Regardless of what, even if what they claimed, even if the worst things that they claim occurred, which that's highly, you know, left up. It's still up for investigation and determining what exactly it was. But even if the very worst things, even if everything that he was just writing there was true, that doesn't justify. That doesn't make this okay. Like nothing does.
0: No, there's nothing that you could tell me about what happened October 7th. No, that would make me think, oh, maybe Israel's right in doing this genocide.
5: Nothing. I mean, what's happening right now. I think it maybe it was the Guardian saying like proportionally the scale of what's going on right now is now worse than the bombings in Dresden. Yeah. Like the, the horrors of World War II, which were the events that caused the Geneva Convention to come to into existence to make sure that this never happened again. This is now worse than that.
4: And he's still. <sighs> I, I just don't have the words. I'm sorry yeah um
5: and this is just i can't even begin to imagine you know what people like Mahmoud, what his family his loved ones i mean if this is what i'm feeling yeah
4: yeah it's disgusting
5: yeah and i know i've seen some comments talking about how you know trying to embrace love and you know embracing hate is the like the easy way out and whatnot to which you know i hear that and i agree with it but at the same time i i have a deep love for the for the people that are trying to fight against oppression right now but boy i don't know if i'm capable of not having some hatred and loathing for those that
0: are inflicting that harm <laughs> I anyway, know yeah, yeah, and no matter what you think, yeah, there's just no excuse for what Israel's doing,
5: I mean, and just as yeah. an aside, just throwing it out there, I know Katie, I mentioned this to you the other day, but this is just a thought just of my own, and even though I know that it's a rhetorical question, but it's one that if it hasn't occurred to anybody that's listening to this, I was thinking maybe it would be worth asking if this is. You know, Israel claims to be the most moral military on earth, and we see you know Biden, the White House spokespeople, Netanyahu, their spokespeople, saying repeatedly, "We have no qualm quarrel with the Palestinian people. We don't wish them any harm, et cetera, et cetera. Why doesn't anyone ask them if that's true? then why haven't they offered why haven't they opened their doors to these people that are fleeing violence? and if they say, well, we can't be sure if one of them, you know, isn't one of the bad people or whatever. Babies. You know, right. like there, there's thousands of the average person who's died there. They've murdered there is the average age is five. They won't open their doors to them. I think that speaks volumes more than whatever, as Ali accurately described it, bullshit. Um that they say their actions speak much louder, in my opinion.
4: Yeah. Well, thank you guys all so much for coming to the stream and I co-sign what you said, Brad.
0: Thank you for watching this. For talk let's all talk about this. Let's all talk about Rafat. Let's all talk about what Israel's doing. Do what he said when i asked him what we could do and we will see you next week and thank you brad thank you tyler thank you phantom Asfanta. and thank you all for helping us get to 150 which is very exciting although kind of seems like a trivial thing in the context of what we're saying but it, it's important only because yeah we gotta get we have I, to
5: i mean what rafat said to you you know what he thinks is needed at least from you know people in the u.s and elsewhere of you know continuing to keep that conversation going to broaden that awareness that increased number of people who are finding value in in the content i think i would like to hope contributes to that in some small way yeah but yeah thank you so much for everyone for being here
0: yeah thank you good night everyone Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.